it's it's awesome to worship with you. Um, I was, you know, sitting up there, and um, I was just reminded uh, why we gather on Sunday. Uh, you know, churches uh, pre you know Jesus Saturday was really the day to gather, and so I was just reminded on Sunday we gather because on Sunday Jesus walked out of the grave, and uh, it's just such a good reminder. That's why we come here on Sunday, right? Because we're celebrating that Jesus walked out of the grave, and so I'm just really thankful and excited to be able to worship alongside you. This morning, if you're a guest this morning, I just want to say uh, welcome to you. My name is Paul Pretty. I'm the teaching pastor here. Members, regular attenders, welcome back. As always, so good to worship alongside of you. Uh, we're continuing in a series we've been in for uh, a little while now. A series called Under the Sun. And in this series, what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is found in the Old Testament. It is uh, one of the wisdom books of the Bible. That's how it's categorized. There are all sorts of different types of books. Of the scriptures, and so this one in particular is a book of wisdom. We have two primary voices in this book of wisdom. We have the author who is really presenting to us the thoughts and the externally processing mind of someone referred to as the preacher. And what this preacher is doing is he is processing really what's the meaning of life. And we've said this in different ways, in different types of ways every single week, but really it's this question is is, is there meaning under the sun? That's what the preacher is asking. What does a man gain for all of the toil at which he toils, which he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, uh, under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, really just means of this world. So the big question is, well, can we find ultimate meaning? Can we find ultimate purpose in this world if we're just living for this world and not for heavenly things? And his answer is no. No, it's all vanity. If we live life just for what this world can give us, we'll live a meaningless life. And that sounds really depressing. That sounds really hard. I understand that. But what we've seen each and every week is really that God offers us a full life in an empty world. And that's been the big idea, the main idea of this entire series, that God offers us a full life in an empty world. Now today, we're going to continue on in chapter 7. Uh, last week, I, made the, I compared this book to a, a, like an onion uh, from Shrek. Uh, when, when Shrek says that, that uh, ogres are like onions and Donkey says they stink, he says, no, uh, we've got layers. And so in this book, while it might um, make you cry, it doesn't stink. What, what we see is the author really peeling back these layers to say, hey, you can try um, living for wisdom. You can try living for your work. You can try living for pleasure in the forms of enjoyment and frivolous activity. But ultimately, you're going to find that it's meaningless. And now in chapter 7, he's sort of circling back to this idea of wisdom. And he's asking this question. We saw it in verse 12 of chapter 6. Now that he's come to the end of really fully explaining to us that we can't find meaning just by living in this world, but yet he's, he's struck with the fact that we still have a life to live. We still have breath in our lungs. And so what he's asking now is, well, if you can't find meaning under the sun, what is good? What is good to do in this short life that you've been given? And now that he's, he's asking this question, he's once again fully answering what it is good for man, for humankind under the sun. And so that, that's really where we are in the text. Um, this text, once again, is, is a little bit of a struggle um, last week I sort of made that uh, statement as well, but I'm going to read the text, then I'm going to pray for us, just so we know uh, where we're going, all right? So Ecclesiastes 7, and we're going to be in uh, 15 through 18, all right? It's really our, our focus for, for the morning. It says, it says this, In my vain life, 
I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It says this, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go from there. Father, uh, it's a difficult text this morning, so we need your help. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, lead us and guide us. Um, God, get me out of the way, uh, and, and just help us see what it is you're saying here in your word. We believe that every single word of the Bible comes from you. We also believe that it is profitable for us to study it. And so, God, um, would you open our minds, open our hearts. Would you transform us today? Uh, you, you have the power to make us different people. You have the power to make us new people through faith in Christ. And so, um, God, we ask this morning that you would do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll be honest with you this morning. I have a typical habit. You know, on Monday morning, I like to sit down. I've got a nice cup of coffee, and I open the text for that coming Sunday, and I start to read the text, and I sip my coffee. It's this lovely little experience. And I have this idealized vision that by the end of Monday, I'm going to be like, crushed it, done. Well, I sat down uh, on Monday, sipped my coffee, read the text, and said, well, I have no idea what to do with that. And so I, I took a step back, made another cup of coffee, as one does, um, and so then I sat down again, read the text again, like, Lord, okay, here we go. Read it again, still nothing. Have no idea what to do with this. Uh, I did it a third time, still nothing. And so it was a real struggle this week um, because he, the, 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 the preacher, he opens up, you know, with, I've seen a lot in this world, right? Verse 15, I've seen it all. And then he tells us in verses 16 and 17 what it is he's seen. I know we already read them, um, but this is what he has, has seen. Um, or actually in 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Okay, And so what he's saying here essentially is, look, I think sometimes we think if we're righteous and if we do all of the right things, what that means is that we, we deserve a good life. And then he says, here's the thing though. What I have seen in this vain life of mine is that righteous people are dying in their righteousness. Their righteousness has not prolonged their life in a sense. Right? And that, I think, contradicts this inherent view that we often have. This is a very common view in the time of the Old Testament 3,000 years ago when King Solomon was writing this, and it's a very common view that we have today, is that good people right, deserve good things and bad people deserve bad things. We, we might not admit we think that, frankly, we might not say, oh yeah, that's absolutely what I think. But I think sometimes we live this out. And then what happens is when we see tragedies, when we see righteous people who seem to be doing all of the right things and bad things happen to them, we say, God, this isn't fair. And then we look around and we see bad people, quote unquote, living the way they want to live and it seems as though they're prospering in the way that Solomon says it, the way the preacher says it, is they're prolonging their life. They're actually extending their life in their wickedness. It's like, what in the world do you do with that? And so then he comes to his conclusion, right? He's saying, this is the way it is. This is what I have observed. And now he says in 16, essentially, therefore, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? <laughs> be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your 
time. So that's his advice. Now, again, I, I really wrestled with this, thinking, God, what in the world does, does one do with this text? And I think there are two ways to interpret this. I've read many commentators, many scholars, and, and, and I hate it when this happens. They don't always agree. I'm like, why not? You guys are supposed to be smart. Come on, get it together. Um, but anyway, I think there's two ways to, to look at this text. I'm first going to give you the wrong way, just to be clear. Because I think as we work through the wrong way, what we're going to see is something that's really, really good for us to be aware of and, and good for us to consider. The, the first wrong way to interpret this, I think, is something called the all things in moderation approach. The all things in moderation approach. And the reason for that is because, once again, he's saying, look, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. Okay? And to, to draw this out, I'm actually going to literally have it sort of drawn out on the screens for us. Again, just work with me, process through with me. So imagine there's a diagram, and I've got one drawn here for us. And up to the right is the path of righteousness. Down to the right is the path of wickedness. Okay? And then we're going to draw a line in the middle Okay, and, and we're going to call that the line of despair. It's a fancy term I'm going to use that basically just means anything above this line is righteous, anything below this line is wicked. Okay? And so the wrong way to interpret this text, be not overly righteous, be not overly wicked, is to say, well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do some good things. Right? I, I'm, going to, I'm going to make sure I'm sort of following the things I'm supposed to follow. I'm going to be a good person, whatever that means. And, and we all sort of naturally, I think, think that, especially if we're Christians. We're like, yeah, that's the right way to live. But then here's, here's the other thing that happens. A lot of the times, there's things below the line of despair that seem pretty nice. We think, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not killing anybody. So, I, I mean, it doesn't really hurt anybody. I'm going to go ahead and try a couple of these things. Also, the screens keep blinking. It drives me nuts, too. So let's just own it. We have a, some type of issue. We've been working for weeks to fix it. Just maybe it'll work someday. Just, I'm sorry. Anyway, so we have these things sort of below the line of despair where we say, well, this is sort of advantageous to me. Maybe I can fudge things a little bit this way. Maybe I don't have to claim that. Maybe I can just sort of cheat my way around this. Maybe I can keep this thing hidden away and nobody will know. And then what we think is we sort of keep doing this, and eventually what we think is, well, you know what, as long as I have more above the line of despair than below the line of despair, well, then I'm okay. And as I say that out loud, you're thinking, well, that's ridiculous. But I want you to be honest with yourself. Is this the life that we live? <laughs> Where we say, yeah, I'm going to make sure I at least appear to be righteous. And there's a whole lot of things under that line of despair that nobody knows about, that we never want anyone to know about, and we would be horrified if anyone did know about them. And so what we do is we sort of live out this all things in moderation faith. And I believe, again, that's the view that is being displayed. Now, why is that wrong? It's a good question to ask. What's so bad about that? Well, I don't think God is a God of moderation. I actually think God is quite extreme. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, what does God say? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And when he says before me, what he doesn't mean is that you can have a hierarchy of gods, and as long as God, capital G God, is number one, then you've got all these little other gods below me, that's okay. He's not saying that. When he's saying, you shall have no other gods before me, that before me really means my presence. 
You shall have no other God in your life because you are always in my presence because God is omnipresent. That's a fancy word that means God is everywhere. Saying, no, there there should be nothing in view. No other authority, no other God should be anywhere. It's extreme. Then if you look into the New Testament, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's extreme. We say, well, what if, what if maybe as long as they're sort of, you know, on the, the line of despair and as long as they've got a little bit more on the positive side, isn't that good? No. Being a good person according to the world doesn't get you to heaven. Jesus does. You can be really, really nice. You can be a really, really great person. You can do all the quote-unquote right things, but if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're still a sinner in need of a Savior, and you're not getting to the Father. That's extreme. If I go elsewhere to the Apostle Paul, once again, just looking at these different extremes, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, after this point, he has, he's essentially been saying, look, I'm the Jew of Jews, right? I'm the ultimate awesome Jew guy, okay? That that sounds offensive. That probably, I'm sorry. Okay, you know what my heart was there. He's saying, look, I was was great in my Jewishness, okay? I was really, really great in my Jewishness. I'm sorry, I I didn't mean that. I'm going to keep moving. He says this, verse 7, yikes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Are right, you saying everything I had, I was prestigious. I excelled above my class. I had positions of leadership. All of that I'm abandoning. I count it as trash. Every accomplishment I achieved, it's nothing for the sake of Christ. That's extreme. Now, Romans 8.2, thinking about how God, Brad just so beautifully talked about the extreme love of God, by the way. Look at what God does in his extreme love. He says, he did not spare his own son, Romans 8.2, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And you have to understand what he means by all things there. I won't go in that today, but he's saying he didn't withhold his son from us. God himself, Jesus the Son of God. That is extreme. Uh, one more, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Church, God is a God of extremes, not moderation. And the reason I want to spend so much time walking through an incorrect interpretation of this text, be not overly righteous, nor be overly wicked, is because, once again, I believe it is very easy for us to fall into this sort of American Christian thing that says, as long as I'm a decent person, I'm okay. And so my question for us this morning is, is, am I in all things in moderation Christian? And that one stung me a little bit this week. Am I, well, I don't want to be overly zealous. I don't want to be like, you know, that guy. That's weird. And I like these, some of these things that Jesus actually died to save me from. So I want to ask you, are you in all things in moderation, Christian? And the way that this works out, church, we need to really understand the the areas of our life that we're compromising. We need to understand, well, if God is a God of extremes, 
and I'm living in moderation, how can I be obedient to what it is he's calling me to? And so if you struggle with your phone, maybe the extreme thing you need to do is to get a brick for a phone. (laughs) If you're constantly distracted, or if you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking, stop it and get a phone from 1992 if they had them then. Right? If, If you struggle going to a bar and you can't control yourself, don't go to the bar. If you struggle with boundaries with your significant other if you're not married, don't be alone with your significant other. If you struggle with, with sort of saying, I'm going to spend this here, but I'm not going to tell them, or whatever it may be, like get accountability so people can view your finances in appropriate ways. What I'm saying is do whatever it takes to not be an all-things-in-moderation Christian because God is not an all-things-in-moderation God. Right? And I know that's hard, and I know that sounds extreme. But I think that's good. I think it's good for us. It's a really scary thing. We're going to get to the book of Revelation this fall. We're going to study quite a bit of that. We're not going to study the whole thing. We're going to study quite a bit of it. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaking to one of the churches, he essentially says this, and I'll paraphrase, you're neither hot nor cold. He says, you're lukewarm, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. Essentially, he says, I'm disgusted by lukewarm following. He wants to vomit us. And it's like, geez, God, help me. (laughs) Help me not be that, because I feel it. Now, that's the wrong interpretation. Just again, he's saying, oh yeah, just do a little of this, a little of this. That's the wrong interpretation. So what, what then is the right interpretation of do not be overly righteous nor be overly wicked. And both of them lead to destruction. Both of them lead to death. Well, similarly to last week, what I want to do is try and illustrate this from other places in the scripture. I made a point last week that that says the Bible interprets the Bible. And so anytime you're reading the scriptures and you come across passages like this and you're thinking, I'm so confused. I need a fourth cup of coffee. I don't understand. And the biblical commentators don't even seem to understand. What do you do with that? Well, you go to other places in the scripture that seem to, and you have to be careful with this. It's called eisegesis. Typically, you want to be exegetical. I'm getting too nerdy. I'm sorry. You want to be careful in how you do this because you can easily misapply a text, okay? So you've got to be careful with this, but I want to take us to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son. Because in this story, I think what we see is actually the preacher's teaching on be not overly righteous and be not overly wicked. And so, Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, that's great. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have the text on the screens for you as long as they stop blinking, um, but no promises there. Okay, so in this story, it's a very familiar story. At this time, Jesus is teaching these different parables Okay, these different stories. And a parable is really a story that teaches a spiritual principle. And what he's teaching in this particular story is the, the immense love of God, once again, to what Brad was talking about. And he's also teaching the power of repentant sinners and God's love for repentant sinners. And so that's really what he's teaching. That's really what he's walking through here. And so he sets it up in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And in verse 12, it says this, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So essentially what the younger son is saying here is, Dad, I want what you're going to give me when you're dead. So if we could just sort of pretend that you're dead and I can get the stuff that's coming to me now, that would be great. 
That's really, really offensive. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. Now, the stunning thing about this is that the father says, okay, sure thing, son. And so he divided his property between the two sons, and he gives the younger son his portion of the inheritance. Now, verse 13, not many days later, after he's got his stuff and he's like, I'm loaded, let's go. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he goes out and he goes crazy. He goes to Vegas and he spends everything he has. He probably had a lot of friends who were with him because they're like, this dude's got it going on. He's got the money. And so people probably really liked him because he was probably very generous with his money because he wasted it very quickly. But eventually all the, all the money eventually disappears. He squanders it in reckless living. Now, eventually what happens is he comes to this point where he can't pay for all of the parties and he can't pay for all of the friends. He's broke. He's desperate. He's in a far-off land. So what he does is he goes and he hires himself out to a farmer. And this particular farmer was a pig farmer. And what's interesting about pig farmers is that to the Jews, pigs are, are dirty animals. They, they essentially represent spiritual uncleanliness. And so what is happening here is this prodigal son who is Jewish finds himself working for a pig farmer, an unclean animal, and he finds himself having to eat the food of the pigs. These details that Jesus gives in this story are to show us the total depravity, that line of depravity. He's all the way down at the bottom of this young man's life. He is broken. He is as good as dead. Now, verse 18 he finally comes to the end of himself, and he thinks, you know what, I'm dying here. There are servants in my father's house who are at least getting food. So here's what I'm going to do. He hatches this plan. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now notice he doesn't say, Father, make me your son again. He says, no, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a hired servant. And so then in verse 20, he goes and enacts this plan, 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt great compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this point, Jesus is expressing to us and displaying to us the radical love of God. So often, I think, when, when we've sinned greatly and we're in the greatest of despair, what we think we need to do is hide from God because we can't handle the shame of our mistakes. And what this shows us is that, no, God is out on the street looking for you, waiting for you. And what we see here is that he's, he's saying, no, I'm going to run toward you. And at this time, a, a prominent Jewish man would not hike up his robes and run. But that's what this father does. And we need to always remember that. No matter how far we've gone, we can always come back to God. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Once again, we saw that in the verses before. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this is my son, for this my son uh, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So I want us to note there's a key here, and the key is repentance. Sometimes we just want to come running back to God, but we haven't repented. That's an important part. 
of the story. You can't come running back to God and say, yeah, I've been following all these things. I've been doing all these things. I'm going to keep doing them. No, no, no. That's not how it goes. It's like, no, I'm going to repent. I'm going to walk away from the life that I was living as I run back to you. And God says, I see your repentance and I, I give you grace. I'm not going to deal with you according to your sin. I'm going to deal with you according to my grace. You have repented. You've walked away from that sin. Sometimes, again, I think we forget that important part of repentance. And he comes back. They're restored. The father goes to his servant, slaughtered the fattened calf. It's basically, we're going to party. It's amazing. My son who is dead, he is now back. And I think, church, this illustrates to us verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 7. Right? Be not overly wicked. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? See, ultimately sin pursued to its fullest, it always leads to death. Sin pursued just a little bit unrepentant when you come to an end of this life also leads to death. All sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And so we have this clear warning. You need to repent. You need to come back to God. Now, remember, there are two brothers, right? Two brothers. We, we saw this first one. He's come back. Now there's a big party. There's a feast. Now in verse 25, we get to the second brother. And we haven't heard much of him. We just know that he exists. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Verse 26. And one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go. His father came out and entreated him. So what we see, pretty clear, I think, in the text. No, I'm not going. You kidding me right now? I come back. I've been working hard. I've been doing all the right things. I've followed every single one of your rules, every single one of your commands. This reckless little brother of mine goes out, squanders everything, takes half of the property of the family, by the way. It's not like they just got that back. They probably worked generations for that. And little brother goes and squanders it away. Older brother's like, he's the worst. He does not deserve to then come back and have a party thrown in his honor. And I am so angry about this, I refuse to go into the party. Why? Because I'm righteous, I deserve the party, he doesn't. Now what's really fascinating is we have to remember this is a parable. Everything represents something. The father, of course, represents God the Father. The younger son, of course, represents all of us, unrepentant sinners who need to repent and run back to God. But the feast, what about the feast? The feast in many ways represents the presence of God in eternity, in heaven, in paradise, whatever you want to call it. And so what we see here is because of his righteousness, he's missing out on the presence of God. It's, it's fascinating. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. We already said this, but here it is in the text. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I've done everything right. This isn't fair. And out of that, he misses out on the party. He misses out on the presence of God because of his self-righteousness. And so then if we go all the way back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and the preacher says, be not overly righteous, I think this is actually what he's talking about. He's saying, be not overly self 
righteous. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So what's really fascinating here is both the wicked brother and the righteous brother, self-righteous brother, what's, what's the common outcome? If the, if the wicked brother didn't repent, death. If the righteous brother continues in his self-righteousness, he's not going to be in the presence of God, therefore death. And so what we see here, church, is that self-righteousness is just as spiritually deadly as unrepentant wickedness. It's just as deadly. So what that means is we could be going about, I'm doing all the right things, I'm doing it because that's the command, that's what I'm supposed to do, but if you're doing it according to your ability and your righteousness, quote unquote, it's just as spiritually deadly as being an unrepentant sinner. And that seems so backwards, that seems so upside down to us, but I would ask you to consider what happens time and time and time again when Jesus encounters Pharisees in the New Testament. These guys were the righteous of righteous. The problem with their righteousness, it was based upon themselves and their, excuse me, and their work. And so Jesus time and time again is saying, what is wrong with you? You whitewashed tombs, right? You look so pure, you look so good, but you're dead because your righteousness is based upon you and not me. And so then, what do we do? If we think about back to these extremes, God is a God of extreme. As First Peter says, be holy as I am holy, God commanding us. We're to flee sin. And so how then do we not be overly wicked? How then do we also not be self-righteous and end up just as dead in both situations? Once again, I want to put this diagram up for us. But this time it's going to be a little bit different. You see, in order to avoid self-righteousness to the point of spiritual death, and in order to avoid wickedness to the point of spiritual death, our focus and our gaze has to be fixed upon the work of Jesus. You see, here's why that works. It's the gospel. Okay, It is absolutely the gospel. Because when we consider the cross, when we consider that Jesus had to die because sin is so serious and so deadly, what that does is it makes us look at our wickedness and say, how can I continue to pursue the very things God himself had to die to save me from? If you're drowning and somebody comes and they risk their lives and maybe they die, actually they do in this story. And they rescue you, they pull you out of the water, they get you to shore, but then they themselves drown. And you're alive, and you're like, oh, I'm alive, this is amazing, and they died, and then you go and jump back into the same situation. That's insane. We wouldn't do that, would we? We'd say, of course I'm not going to get myself into that situation again. Why do we do it with sin? Why do we keep pursuing the very things that we've repented of? and ask Jesus to cleanse us up. But here's the thing. What we have to see is that, is that it's not our work. Right? As we continue to go, we have to see, wait a minute, no. Jesus died for this, so Jesus, I need you to set me free from this. And so then in order to avoid self-righteousness, what we need to understand is that it's Jesus' righteousness in my place. And as we keep keep sin and keep pursuing righteousness on and on, the gospel continues to actually get bigger in our lives. To eventually, our sole focus should be, not just eventually, but from the start until the time we're called home, our sole focus should be the gospel. 
So often when we hear the word gospel, we think, oh, that one time somebody yelled at me for a while, and I'm like, yeah, you're right, and I believe, and that's the last time I hear the gospel. No, the gospel is every single day of the Christian life, because in the gospel, we naturally reject sin, and we naturally reject self-righteousness, because we understand we're deserving of death, and we understand the only way we're viewed as righteous is because it's Christ's righteousness in us, because we're still sinners. We're still flawed. We're still broken. And even though we're still flawed, even though we're still broken, even though we're still going to sin, we have an advocate with the Father who intercedes on our behalf, who says, no, yes, they sinned. I see their sin, but they're still righteous because I am righteous. And so when God sees us, he doesn't see us as as wretched sinners. When we have faith in Christ, he sees us as beloved children sees us as co-heirs with Christ. He sees us sees us with the blood of Christ on us. And so this morning, what I really want to challenge us toward, maybe we're, we're living in an all things in moderation faith right now. And we need to really get serious about rejecting wickedness and pursuing righteousness. But the way we got to do that, again, is through understanding what Jesus has done for us. And we've really got to get serious about saying, no, I'm going to walk away from that. And it's such a tension. It requires effort, and yet it's Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit working in us. It is such a tension. But I pray that by the grace of God, we would not become overly self-righteous because we understand, once again, it's not us. And we would flee from sin because we understand what Christ has done for us. So I want to ask you, what's your next step this morning? I think every time we gather as the church, we gather once again because it's Sunday and we're celebrating that Jesus walked out of the grave. And so as we're gathering, I just want to challenge you and ask you, what is a next step that you can take to celebrate what Jesus has done and to live out the incredible sacrifice that he has made for us? Let's pray together. Father, um, you know where every single one of us is this morning. God, I want to ask that you would help us flee self-righteousness. If we get self-righteous, God, we are just doomed. And so we won't be loving to other people. We, we, won't, um, we won't glorify you, Jesus. We'll just take all the credit. And so by your spirit, God, would you rip away self-righteousness from us, pride from us, to understand that we are weak, that we are needy, that we are dependent. And God, for anybody just living a, a all things in moderation, lukewarm faith, I just want to challenge us. I want to challenge myself. I want to be radical for Christ. But again, not in my own righteousness, but out of a holy centered view of the gospel. Jesus, you lived perfectly in my place because I couldn't. That Jesus, you took God's wrath against my sin. It was my sin that held you there on the cross. And Jesus, it's your righteousness in me. Anything good in me is because of you, Jesus. Anything right in me is because of your grace, your mercy, your power. God, help us live that. Make us a people so gospel-centric, so gospel-driven that any good thing that comes out of here 
Any right thing that comes out of here just points directly to you, Jesus, so that you would be known and proclaimed in this city, so that people would see life change is possible, so that people would know that where they are now is not where they have to be because of you, Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're just a mess, you're the prodigal son, but you, you don't know what to do, the Father's looking for you. He's waiting for you, and he's given you his son to save you and to make you into a new creation. God, we need you. We love you. Glorify yourself in our midst this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray.